Welcome to Parker Memorial's podcast of the 8.30 a.m. service. Our service includes modern-style worship and an on-time message from God's Word. This week, we continue our in-depth study into the book of Revelation by Dr. Mac Amos. Now, here's this week's message. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and be turning them to the Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. The last few weeks, we focused on chapters 17 and 18. Chapter 17 deals with the fact that God, whenever he comes to redeem the world, one of the things he has to redeem the world of is to redeem it of the world systems that have been marred by sin. In chapter 17, we see that God deals with the corrupt religion of the tribulation period that has been existing from the very beginning of Babel until the final tribulation period, and God will deal with the corrupt religion religion. Last week in chapters 18, we saw that God says he will also deal with a corrupt government, economic, and social system that has been impacted and marred by sin, and that there will be the cleansing of that. There's only one other thing that is left to deal with, and that is that God's redemptive work must also deal with the military. The military might And the instruments of war that are found in this world. Wouldn't it be great to live in a world where you don't have to have any military? Wouldn't it be great to live in a world where nobody's going to hurt anybody else? Nobody's going to take anybody's stuff? It's all going to be safe and sound because God's ruling over it. Well, that's not the world we live in, but God is going to make a world like that one day. So what he has to do is he has to deal with the military might. And how does he deal with the military might of all of the world? What does he finally and ultimately do? It's probably the best known thing about the book of Revelation. It's called the Battle of Armageddon. It is where all the world comes together to do battle. For what they perceive as a purpose that is not the purpose, but it will ultimately be revealed what the purpose is, what old Satan's plan and what his purpose is in using them. So today we're going to look in chapter 19 at this battle of of Armageddon. Now, I could preach for two or three months on that, so you understand I'm having to give you a summary, and I'm going to give you some, some chapters and books of the Bible for you to look at to give you greater detail about that. But what does it say in the Bible about the battle of Armageddon? Before I do that, I want you to notice that I'm skipping verses 1 through 10. I'm skipping verses 1 through 10 of 19. We'll come back to that. I want to deal with all this redemptive work that God is doing And then we'll come back in there at the beginning of chapter 19. It's the four hallelujahs and it's the marriage of the lamb and everything else begins to be great and smooth after that. Amen. So I'm going to take that and we'll pick up with chapter 20 and we'll go on regarding those things. But let's deal first of all with this battle of Armageddon. Look what it says there in verse 11 of chapter 19. And I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat upon it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems. And he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it 
he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which, are in, which fly in midheaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, in order that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of his mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and of the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two, well underline this, were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with a sword which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Go on to verse 1 of chapter 20. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the old ser- the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over so that he could no longer deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Amen and amen. Who is this that we are first introduced to in verse number one? And I saw the heavens open and behold, there was a white horse And the one who rode upon it is called Faithful and True. I don't want to confuse you with the other white horse. Remember when we first started the book of Revelation in chapter 6, verse 1, when the first seal was broken, I introduced you to somebody who was riding a white horse. You remember that? And I told you at that time that that one who rode that white horse was not the Christ, was not Jesus, but rather was who? Is the Antichrist. He comes riding that white horse. He comes in pronouncement that he is, has that rightful position. When he doesn't have that rightful position, it says he has a bow in his hand without an arrow because he's eventually going to take over the rulership of this world without military might. But by the deceiving of the nations, he will take over the rulership. And that is the first seal that is broken that begins all the other things that are those seven years of tribulation. Well, now we come to the real person who's supposed to be riding the white horse. Amen? This is the true Christ. This is the real Messiah. This is none other than the Lord Jesus himself. He is coming. He's riding a white horse of victory. He is about to win and pronounce himself as victorious. But what and how is he described? First of all, I want you to write down these things. There are three names that are given to him. This is a good passage of bragging on Jesus. Amen. If you want to brag on Jesus, this is a good passage to brag on Jesus. Three names that are given about Jesus, calling him by that name, and other descriptions that magnify that name. So let's identify Jesus and talk about who he is. There it says in chapter 19, verse 11, it says, 
And he who sat upon it was called, here's the first name, faithful and true. The Lord Jesus Christ is faithful and he is true. You can depend upon him and he lives in the realm of truth. Now that is important because of what he is coming to do. He is coming to first judge the nations. And then he is also coming to be executioner of the unrighteous. But whenever he is fulfilling that role of being judge of the nation and executioner of the unrighteous, he is faithful and true. What he says, what he does is truth. He is faithful and true. That's how it goes on describes him. He is faithful and true. Here it is. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. There is going to one day be a righteous war. Now, I know sometimes we have defined different things as being righteous wars. I don't know that mankind in itself can ever truly have a righteous war because we have too much unrighteousness about us. Even in the midst of our righteous acts, we can be unrighteous. Isn't that true? But when Jesus comes, who's faithful and true, he is going to truly wait for, and his will be true righteousness. In other words, what he is battling against is ungodliness and unrighteousness, and you can bank on the fact that he is going to come and judge, and he is going to wage war. Look at verse 12. He has eyes are a flame of fire. That's a picture of the fact that Jesus sees all, and he knows all. He doesn't have to have anybody to come give him testimony. He knows everything that's happening, and he knows every thought and intent of heart and life. He knows every thought of any king. He knows every thought of any military might. He knows everything about it. He doesn't have to have witnesses who come and give it. He has the eyes of a flame. Upon his head are many diadems. Those diadems are the true and righteous crowns. Remember that? Not the make-believe crown, not the crown that's given to the athlete who wins. These are the diadems of that one who is ruler, who is emperor. And Jesus has multiple diadems because he is not just king. He's king of kings. He is king over all things. So he has multiple diadems upon his head. He has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. Boy, I love that. I love that. He has a name written about him that describes who he is that no one knows except himself. Why is that important? Because that gives us meaning to what God said originally to Moses back in the book of Exodus. When Moses said, God, tell me your name. Tell me your name. And he says, my name is Yahweh. It is the memorial name Yahweh, and Yahweh means I am that I am, or I am the great I am. And I've shared with you before as we've looked at that particular passage that that's really, uh, that's really poor English, did you know? <laughs> because the verb to be de- deserves and must have a complement. Did you know that? You can't just say I am. You say, I am a man, I am a woman, I am something. There's got to be something that goes after am. You can't just leave it blank. But God left it blank. Why? Because there was no word adequate to describe who he was and who he is. God is I am. 
beyond description. Also, he is everything that is needed. Whenever you need it, he is letting you fill in the blank. I am whatever you need. And when Jesus came and walked on this earth, he identified himself as the I am. You remember when they came to arrest him in the garden and said, which of you is Jesus of now? Are you Jesus? I am. And what happened to those soldiers? You remember what happened to them? They fall flat on their backs. Why? Because the great I am has spoken. Jesus Christ is the I am. And so whenever he says that written upon him is a name which no one else knows, there is a word, there is a name, there is a description that describes him, but we don't know it. He knows it. And one day when we get the glory, we'll be able to know it. There is a word, his word, I don't know what it'll be, but it is adequate to describe who he is. It is written upon him. He is the faithful one. He's the true one. Look at verse 13. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Now get in your mind. I know some people, they think about that. Jesus' robe is dipped in blood. That's because he died on the cross. No, that's not his blood. (laughs) The blood that's on his robe is not his blood. Jesus came the first time as suffering servant to die on a cross and he shed his blood. But whenever he finished shedding that last drop of blood, he will shed his blood no more. He has finished being the sacrificial lamb and now he has taken position as king of kings and lord of lords, the great I am. And so when it says that he wears a robe, it is a judicial robe that he wears and he wears that robe. It is dipped in blood and it's going to be the blood of judgment, the blood of the judgment that's coming upon those who are unrighteous. That judgment causes the shedding of blood. The shedding of blood. Okay, second name. This is what it says, verse 13. And his name is called the Word of God. That's the second name. He is called the Word of God. Interesting thing about the Word of God. It's the Word of God that brought about the creation of the world, isn't it? God spoke and the worlds were created. I personally believe God spoke and he created in a hurry. <laughs> Some people like to think that he spoke and it took him a long time to do it. Let me, tell you, let me tell you about the God we serve. All he has to do is speak it and he can do it as soon as he wants to do it. Amen. And what I love about that is he confounds the mind of man because man's trying to figure out what he did when man wasn't there. I just soon believe what God said as what man's trying to figure out. Amen. <laughs> but I can tell you one thing. Everything came into existence because of his word. The world was created by his word. Listen, in John 1, Jesus, it says Jesus is the word. Therefore, man is redeemed by the word. He not only created by the word, but he is redeemed by the word of God. And the ultimate thing is the end of all things come by the word of God. As the word of God, he was in the beginning. As the word of God, he is redeemer. As the word of God, he will bring all things to end. His word is so very important. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will last forever. The word of God. And one of the names of Jesus is that he is the word of God. Look what happens. Skip verse 14. Verse 15. 
And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he might smite the nations. In other words, he's telling you right there how this judgment of God and how this end of this war is going to happen. Do you know how the the Armageddon really ends? I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to tell you in a minute. But it's not going to be by military might. It's not going to be by military might. It's going to be by the word of God. By the word of God, he can smite the nations. Look what it says in verse 15. And he will rule them with a rod iron, iron of rod, a rod iron of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. If you remember, whenever we looked at that previous in chapter 14 and also in chapter 16, it talks about the wrath of God, the reaping of God and the wrath of God that is coming. That there would be the wine press and coming out of the wine press would not be, would be not be the fruit of the vine, but coming out of the wine press would be the blood of men. He is coming to tread upon the wine press. Look what it says in verse 16, a third name, listen. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Not just king, king of kings. Not just Lord, he is Lord of lords. Isn't it interesting that there was always in the scripture and in the story and the life of Jesus, there was always this this picture of who he was going to be. Go back and think about that. Think about the Christmas story. The Christmas story, the wise men came searching for Jesus When they came searching for Jesus as a babe, they said, where is the, who? Where is the king of the Jews? For we have seen his star and have traveled to worship him. Isn't it interesting that when he hung on a cross, that old unrighteous Pilate, moved by the spirit of God, doing something he doesn't even know he's doing. He does what? He writes over the head of that of Jesus as he's on the cross on a placard, the king of the Jews. He doesn't even know what he's doing, pronouncing that he is king. And ultimately and finally, we find out that he is going to be, as he is, king of kings and lord of lords. And it's written written upon his thigh that he is king of kings and lord of lords. Three names, many descriptions of this one who is riding on that white horse. Well, I'll tell you the second thing, all right? Not just a description of him. Second thing, who's coming with him? Who's coming with him? That's why I had you skip verse 14. Look what it says. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. There's a heavenly army that's coming with Jesus. Now, I believe that some of that army are going to be angels. I believe it's going to be an angelic army that's coming with Jesus. But it's not just the angels who are coming with Jesus. Who else has come with Jesus? His saints, the church of the living God. 
those who've been redeemed, who had been raptured before, they're there waiting during that tribulation period. And now it is time for them. And so here are the angels who are coming, and here are the righteous saints of God, and they're all, we're all coming, and we're all going to be clothed in white linen, representing purity, and going to ride white horses. That's going to be great. That's going to be great. You one day are going to ride a white horse. Could you imagine what that's going to look like? Could you imagine that many horses? Could you imagine that many white horses? I remember one time our family went to see the Lipizzaner Stallions. Have you ever seen them? The Lipizzaner Stallions, those Arabian white horses who do all those tricks. And it was just beautiful to see that. It'd be about 10 or 12 of those white horses, and they were doing all kinds of things. 10 or 12 white horses all in one ring. It's pretty amazing to see. It, it kind of grabs. Think about millions of white horses, and you're going to be riding on them. And you're coming as part of the army of God, as part of the army of Christ. Wow. So here comes King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and here we come with him. And what is he going to do? He is going to issue out three victories. Write that down. There are three victories that are going to take place. Three victories that are going to happen. We want to identify those victories that make up what is called the Battle of Armageddon. Now, get in your mind this. The Battle of Armageddon is not just one skirmish that happens on one day. The word battle, Battle of Armageddon, actually means war. In other words, there's a war that's going on. Okay, And there's a war that could go on many, many days, not just one battle. Matter of fact, we know because of the, in chapter 6, the second seal that was broken was the red horse. Remember that? And the red horse was represented what? It represented war. And, and at the very time, whenever the saints of God are gone and the tribulation period enters in, the Antichrist is coming on the scene. The first seal, second seal is war is going to happen. And all those seven years, it is going to be a time of war. War is going to be happening all over the world at that particular time. There's going to be people trying to defeat this person and defeat that nation. And de- War is going to be a major part of the tribulation period. But whenever it begins to draw to an end, there's going to be this battle of Armageddon or this war that is coming to that's going to last a number of days that's going to take place here in the valley of Megiddo. And, and if you ever go to, if you ever go to, uh, to Israel, you'll be able to see this, this, vast, this vast valley. You can see it from one end down to the other end. Napoleon, whenever he was conquering the world, said there is no greater battleground than this valley of Megiddo. And many wars have taken place there, but the ultimate war is going to happen. It is about 100 miles north of Jerusalem, but this valley makes its way all the way through it. That's going to be the place that is happening, going to take place. It tells us what's going to happen here, beginning in verse 17. Look what it says. I mean, I'm sorry, verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. He said what? He saw the kings of what? 
Look at it. What does it say? Of the entire earth. And what? And their armies all assembled together to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. Now, let me describe that for you. First of all, let me give you some references so that you can write them down, all right? One of those references is Psalm 2, verses 1 through 9. Psalm 2, verses 1 through 9. It's a, it's a picture of the battle of Armageddon. Another of those verses, Scripture, is Daniel chapter 11, primarily verses 20 through 45, when he describes what I'll share with you in a minute about how all of these, these different armies come together in Jerusalem in order to do that battle. Also, Ezekiel 38, verses 14 through 17. Joel 2, verses 1 through 10 and verse 20. And then Zechariah chapter 12, verses 8 and 9, and Zechariah 14, verses 3, 4, and 12. I'll look at those in just a moment. Those verses will help you understand how all of this works together. Let me tell you what is the most popular thought of how and what Daniel wrote was going to take place of how you get all of these nations together. We saw earlier that it says whenever those, that last plague or the next to the last plague, which is the battle of Armageddon, that is in chapter 16, verses 13 through 16. It introduces this as when the dragon and the beast and the false prophet send forth unclean spirits like frogs in order to deceive the kings and the nations. In other words, you say, how would all of these kingdoms, how would all these militaries, how would all this war take place? How would that possibly happen? Because the old beast and Satan have sent forth these deceiving spirits into the minds of the leaders of those nations, thinking that they're accomplishing a purpose, thinking there's something there to do. And all of that's being orchestrated for an ultimate purpose of what Satan has and what Satan wants to do. Daniel describes it this way. That there's the southern kingdom or the king of the south. The king of the south is the nation of Egypt as well as Arabs and all of the African nations. They form a kingdom and they have a king over the king of the south. There's a king of the north. The king of the north is thought to be Russia and all the allies of Russia. Known as Gog. You'll hear that in Ezekiel. In the nation of Gog, the northern kingdom. There is an eastern army or eastern king, and that is the one described when it says the river Euphrates will dry up. And when the Euphrates, an army of 200 million, 200 million soldiers will cross over the dry Euphrates. That is thought to be China and the Oriental army. And then there's the western army. The western army is actually controlled by the Antichrist, and it is the revived Roman Empire and all of those nations that are put together. The king of the north and the king of the south first come together in their thoughts that they're going to form an alliance that is going to do battle and rule the world. But in the midst of that, the king of the north deceives the king of the south, and he comes and actually overcomes him and takes control of Egypt. And he sets up his headquarters there in Egypt with all the wealth and riches of Egypt, think that he's going to enjoy it. But about the time that he thinks he's going to enjoy that, he hears of a rumor that there is an army from the east of millions of soldiers that are coming, and he has to do war against them. 
So he makes his way with his army, now the army of the north and the south, makes his way to the prized possession, which is the prized possession of Jerusalem, that holy city. Jerusalem is the prized city of all the world. I don't know if you realize that. It is the prized city of the, of the Arabs. It is the prized city of the Jews. It's the prized city of Christianity. It is the prized city. And there he's making his way towards Jerusalem where the Antichrist and his army are already in place. They're already in Judea. They're already there because he had set up his place of worship as being the temple and that they will worship him in that image. So the king of the north comes up and they're ready to do battle. The king of the east is coming over and they're going to do battle. The king of the north prophesied by Ezekiel is going to be defeated. But in regard to that, all of these nations are gathered together. And the thought of that is when they come, the thought is they're going to battle against the Antichrist and his soldiers, his army. But that's not the plan of Satan. The plan of Satan is this, that he has gathered all the militaries of the world to battle against Jerusalem, primarily because of the believers of God who would be there in Jerusalem. And because that's the place that Jesus is said to come back, he's bringing all the armies of the world to get ready to fight against the Son of God and his army. If there's one thing about old Satan, he does not give up. (laughs) He doesn't give up. I mean, he got thrown out of heaven the first time. He gets thrown out and banished to the earth the second time. You would think finally and ultimately he realized he cannot win. But even in this, he is getting the armies of the world to come together, this vast array of humanity, that they might do battle against the Son of God and his army. The battle is taking place in this valley of Megiddo. It says there's going to be so much blood, it is though it's at the range of the horse. Now, I told you, that doesn't mean it's that deep, but the horses will have blood all over. It is going to be a bloody battle of these different armies. It's going to be a battle that's going to have to take place. But finally and ultimately, they are going to move towards Jerusalem. And the battle is going to come to the very city, that holy city of Jerusalem. And when it comes to that city of Jerusalem... That is when the Son of God will show up. That's when the Son of God will show up. Let me show you. Just turn back in your Bibles to Zechariah. Zechariah. Just go to Malachi and back up a little bit. And you'll find yourself in Zechariah. And I want you to see what it says about what's going to take place there. In Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 14. Verse 13, chapter 14, verse 3. Well, verse 2. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city will be captured and the houses plundered and the women ravished and half of the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. You ought to underline that. Especially when it says, as he fights on a day of battle. And listen to what else it says. And in that day, his feet will, let, will stand on Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. 
And the Mount of Olives will be split in the middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move towards the north and the other half towards the south. And you will flee by the valley of my mountains. In other words, he says, whenever they come together and they're going to do battle, whenever they gather together, they're going to carry out this battle. That is the time when the Son of Man will show up. So they're ultimately coming and they're battling against Jerusalem, trying to wipe out any righteous ones, any sanctified, any of those tribulation saints, and also knowing that that is the prized possession of God and that God will eventually show up, that the Son of Man will eventually show up. And whenever that battle comes and rages there in Jerusalem, the Son of God does show up. Go back to the Revelation. Now hold your hand there in Zechariah for just a minute, but go back to the Revelation chapter 19. Verse nine, chapter 19, verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. That's the picture of them coming in the battle of Armageddon to do battle against the Son of God. Now, let me tell you something. Write this down. If you don't write another thing down, write this down. This is not a fair fight. Just write it down. This is not a fair fight. Whether you know it or not, fighting against God is a losing battle. Y'all realize that? For those of you who keep fighting against him because he wants you to do something and you won't do it, let me just go ahead and tell you. It's a losing battle. All right? It says that whenever these nations gather against God, that he's going to do war against them the way he does war. Well, let me tell you how God does war. It's not a fair fight. Let me give you some illustrations. The first illustration is found in the book of Exodus. Whenever the Egyptian army decided they didn't want to let the children of Israel go, and they sent Pharaoh sent his massive, and that was the army of the world at that time, all right, sent his army to gather back the children of Israel, God buried that massive army in the Red Sea. Children of Israel didn't do anything but go to the other side, walk across on dry land, turn around, watch the Egyptians get buried, and they sang songs. They did. Read it. They sang songs. All right, let me, let me tell you another one. When Gideon had to fight in the book of Judges, when Gideon was called upon to fight, when he had to fight that army, that army was 135,000 men. 135,000 men. At first, Gideon had 32,000 soldiers. God said, you got too many. He said, if you want to go home, go home. 22,000 left. It left him 10,000. And he said, that's still too many. So have them drink this way or that way. And the ones who drink this way, I want you to keep it. And he ended up with 300 men. And God said, got just enough. You got just enough. Because whenever they were to go do battle, they weren't going to do any fighting. All they were going to do is stand in their position Break the, break the little pottery, let the light shine and blow the horn. And God does the fighting. And 120,000 of them killed each other. Not a fair fight. It's not all. Whenever, uh, whenever they were Samaria, the city of Samaria was besieged by the Syrian army. Whenever they were besieged, and remember, they, they couldn't eat anything. People didn't have in Samaria have anything to eat. They were even cannibalizing. And God said, I will deliver. And so they, they'd been in, being besieged by this army, the Syrian army, all this time. And God just calls the Syrian army to hear a noise in the night. 
And they got so afraid, they left everything and ran home and left all the riches. Not a fair fight. In 2 Kings chapter 19, verses 3 and following, it's the story of whenever the Assyrian army under Sennacherib came and was going to defeat the children of Israel, when Hezekiah goes and he prays before Almighty God. And he asked God to show mercy. And as Hezekiah prayed, God sent, listen to this, one angel. How many? Boy, you're good. One angel and one angel in one night killed 185,000 Assyrians. One angel, one night. Not a fair fight. Not only that, Jehoshaphat. When Jehoshaphat, his kingdom was being overcome by the Moabites and the Ammonites, Jehoshaphat goes, humbles himself, and prays. And God says, go out, and I will do battle for you. But what I want you to do is put the singers and players up front. Singers and players aren't going to be able to fight. All they got is harps and voices. Put the singers and players up front, and whenever they begin to sing and play, God calls the Moabites and the Ammonites to turn on each other. And whenever they turned on each other, they did battle and they killed one another. Never had to raise their sword. Not the children of Israel raised their sword. It's not a fair fight. So when all of this, when all of this army gathers together, when all these people gather together and they think that they're going to to win. And old Satan has him in position that they're going to fight against the Son of God. They're in trouble. They're in trouble. So let me show you the three victories that happened when that takes place. Back there in Revelation, chapter 19, look what it says, verse 20. Here's the first victory. And the beast, that's the old Antichrist. And with him, the false prophet, that was his false prophet who who kept doing miracles. Remember, he did all kind of miracles so everybody would follow the, the Antichrist. And they were the major leaders. They're, they're, the, they're the hands and the instruments of old Satan carrying out this work in the tribulation period. And the beast was seized. And with him, the false prophet who performed the signs in the presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. Bless God. That's the first victory. The old beast, the Antichrist, has been ruling this world. They've been running this world for seven years, especially dominating the world the last three and a half years in this time of tribulation. The old false prophet is doing all these miracles, and everybody's amazed by what's happening and taking place. Everybody's in awe of that. And they now have coordinated and led and deceived all these nations to come together and to fight against the Son of God and His army. And the first thing, they just go and grab them like a, like a big cat would a rat, and grab that rat and just throw them out. I mean, then, uh, you know, one of the things that happens when the, army, when the army loses its commanders, it loses its voice and focus. Whenever, whenever the commanders and the rulers are gone, those who are supposed to be waging war and giving instruction, whenever they're not there anymore, the armies are lost. So the first thing that happens is he just goes in, grabs out those two prominent leaders of this satanic army, and he throws them into the pit of hell. First people 
ever placed in hell will be the beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. First people. I know people say, well, they died and they're in hell. No, they're not. There's nobody in hell right now. There's not one person in hell. If somebody dies and they un- die in an unrighteous state, they go to a place called Hades. It's a holding place. It's, it's more in line with what is called the abyss, the bottomless pit. It's the holding area, the waiting time until hell is where they will go. The first two beings that go in to hell are the Antichrist and the false prophet. They will be cast into hell. And so now their leaders, their leaders have gone. Look what happens in verse 21 then. It tells you this. And the rest, that's all these other armies. The rest were killed, listen here, with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Okay, how is it they're defeated by the sword? Not by the sword of man, but by the sword that what? That came out of his mouth. And what did, he, what did it say was the sword that came out of the mouth of the one who sits on the horse? It is the word of God. It is the word of God. In other words, the way this army is going to be set up, the way this army is going to be defeated, it's going to be defeated by the word of Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. This is what I like about it. When we're riding our white horses, And we're all getting up there and this vast army of God shows up with Jesus. We're just a display. We're just on display. We're to show his glory and greatness. He doesn't need us to come. He doesn't need one angel. He doesn't need one saint. There's not one thing we're going to do except observe his glory. For what he's going to do is he is going to speak a word. And when he speaks the word, those armies will be gone. Be gone? Yeah, actually, it actually tells you. Do you know that? You're interested? You want to see that? Let me show you something. Turn back to Zechariah. Turn back to Zechariah just a minute. Zechariah chapter 14. Verse 9 says this. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. And in that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name, the only one. Now look at verse 12. You ought to underline this verse. Listen. Now this will be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Remember, all of them are gathered together where? To fight against Jerusalem. This will be the plague that happens to those, all of those who've come to war against Jerusalem. Here it is. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet. It's the Bible. And their eyes will rot in their sockets. And their tongues will rot in their mouth. Did y'all read that? In other words, all Jesus has to do is speak a word. And they will rot. Let me tell you better. Let me tell you what I think really happens. Okay? This is my opinion. Right? But it's a pretty good one. 
It says that Jesus, and Jesus is the one who holds all things together. Do you know that book of Colossians? The only way that things of life and creation is held together, the only reason our earth stays in its right orbit is because Jesus holds it together. The only reason that atoms, the electrons keep revolving and rotating around that nucleus of that atom is because Jesus holds it together. If you want to see the power it takes that Jesus uses to hold an atom together, just divide that. It's called a atomic bomb. It does a lot of destruction. That means that the power holding that together is greater than the power that is dispersed by it. It takes that much power to hold those atoms together. And the one who holds all things together is Jesus. And all Jesus has to do at any point in time with any atom and with your life is say, no longer hold it together and you will literally melt in your place. All he has to do is no longer hold you together. And that's what he does. That's what he does. He doesn't need an army. His voice, his words is all it takes. Let me, tell, let me, show, you how, let me show you something. Let me show you how, how God, there's a principle here that you need to understand. God always provides before there's a need. Go back to the Revelation. God always provides for there's a need. You're going to need that in your life, okay? Whenever you face a need, you're going to face a need this week, and you'll be panicking about it. You'll be frantic over it. You're going to be upset about it. You're going to have this need in your life. What are you going to do? God always provides before there's a need. Let me say that again in case some of you didn't get that, all right? There, God always provides before there's a need. All right? He, that's just a biblical principle. God never says, Hold on there just a second. I forgot. <laughs> I, I forgot to get that. And so you hold on while I go get it for you. Doesn't happen. God always provides for there's a need. Look at this. Let me show you something in this principle. Look at verse 17. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. Verse 9, chapter 19 of the Revelation. This is back to Revelation 19, verse 17. I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried out with a loud voice saying to all the birds. That, that word birds is the word vultures. Okay, it's the word vulture. To all the vultures, saying to all the virtual the vultures which are in mid heaven, come assemble for the great supper of God. Let me tell you something. There are two meals that are pictured in the Revelation. One of them you don't want to be a part of because if you're a part of it, you're going to be it. It's called the supper of God. The second one is called the marriage feast of the Lamb. You want to be there, Amen. But not the great supper of God. He tells the vultures, gather together for the great supper of God. In order that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of the mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men, slaves, small and great. You come for there is going to be the supper of God. He prepares the vultures. Can you imagine that many vultures flying in? Can you imagine how many vultures it's going to take to consume what is going to be left of all of this? He provides the vultures before there's ever a supper. But it says there in verse 21, the very last part, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Those birds were so full they couldn't fly anymore. And why did God send it? Because God wants to clean up the mess. He's going to clean up the mess. First victory, the old beast and, and, and the old prophet get thrown into hell. 
The second victory is it's over the kings of the earth who come to do battle against Jerusalem and the Son of God. And the third victory is found in verse chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. And that is when the angel comes down and he grabs old Satan himself, he binds him with chains, and he cast him into the abyss. Not hell. He cast him into the bottomless pit, the abyss, where he will be for a thousand years. Chained. He doesn't have the freedom to do what he wants to do. He's chained in that abyss. He is held prisoner in that place. He will remain there for a thousand years during the millennial reign of Christ. We'll talk about that. And then he's going to be let out for a season, for just a short season. And after that short season, he is going to be grabbed and thrown into the lake of fire where he, like the old false prophet and the Antichrist, will be forever and ever along with all of the unrighteous will be thrown into that pit. A threefold victory of Jesus. The beast false prophet thrown into the lake of fire. The armies against God have melted in their place. And old Satan himself, who's the orchestrator of all of the enemy and all of the opposition to God, has been chained by the angel and thrown into the abyss for a thousand years. That concludes this week's message from Brother Mac. Additional sermons and reference materials are available from our website at parkermemorial.com slash sermon dash series. Jesus said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. I have overcome the world. We can help you know the one who can bring you peace. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Parker Memorial Baptist Church, as well as our website at parkermemorial.com. May God bless you until we meet again.